This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible healthcare for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Healthcare has always been to reduce suffering, but three perfect storms in recent years the health storm pr- produced by the COVID 19 pandemic, the economic storm that resulted from its disruptions, and the social storm that followed the murder of George Floyd, which sparked fresh outrage at long standing inequities, have sharpened and added important nuances of what that means. And this week on the Race to Value, we're joined by Thomas H. Lee, MD, the author of the new book, Healthcare's Path Forward, to discuss how healthcare is being transformed to a deeper knowledge of what suffering means for patients, their families, and healthcare providers themselves. In addition to being a best selling author and expert on healthcare transformation, Dr. Lee is the chief medical officer of Press Ganey, and he brings more than three decades of experience in healthcare performance improvement as a practicing physician, a leader in provider organizations, a researcher, and a health policy expert. He's responsible for developing clinical and operational strategies to help providers across the nation in measuring and improving the patient experience with an overarching goal of reducing the suffering of patients as they undergo care and improve the value of their care. Eric, I think it was such a great conversation with Tom today, and I'm super glad we had this interview. I know our listeners are going to appreciate it as well. And I wanted to thank you all, our listeners, for leading a value transformation in your respective organizations. And today you're going to learn from one of the, the best, you know, Dr. Tom Lee, who's going to provide some valuable insights to you and blazing a new path forward in healthcare transformation. Again, this is another great episode we're honored to bring to you each and every week. If you want to continue to access our content and, and learn more about our podcast, please subscribe to our newsletter. You can go to our website, racetovalue.org. And also, uh, if you like the content, please feel free to leave uh, a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. So now let's hear from Dr. Thomas H. Lee as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Well, Tom, welcome to the Race to Value. It's such an honor to have you on the show this week. Well, it's my great pleasure, and I can't wait to get started. Well, we're real excited to discuss your new book, Healthcare's Path Forward. Your new book explores how the pandemic and other crises have revealed what excellence in healthcare truly means, and it presents an action plan to achieve it. And as we start our conversation today, 
I'd like to explore what this book really means to you and set the stage for how it can serve as a framework to improve value in healthcare and ultimately lead to an end to unnecessary human suffering. And as I was reading your book, I noticed that there are six prevailing themes that come up repeatedly, excellence, trust, respect, inclusion, resilience, reliability. And these are powerful elements of organizational culture that can invariably lead to transformation. However, many of us in healthcare, we take these for granted. We've become anesthetized and conditioned by the flawed design of our system which emphasizes profit over patient outcomes and often leads to an inexorable amount of human suffering that runs counter to our ultimate ultimate healing mission. And even those in leadership who are awakened to the path forward face insurmountable odds in achieving the virtuous heights of transformation. And in your book, you liken this challenge to the work of the late John Nash, who's extraordinary story was covered in the the book and movie a beautiful mind and you know, nash won the nobel prize for economics for describing an equilibrium concept for non-cooperative games in which binding agreements cannot be written and in this nash equilibrium no party can change its strategies while the other parties keep their strategies unchanged so tom how do you see these last few years of covid 19 burnout in the healthcare workforce and this elevated consciousness around health equity and social justice serving as an inflection point for this new path forward in healthcare. Are you ultimately optimistic that we can surpass the state of equilibrium in our industry where the pain of the status quo exceeds the fear of the unknown and becoming a high reliability organization no matter what? Well, Eric, you really read the book. I am so pleased. And you you came away with some of the bigger themes that I think uh, are often you know, maybe a little subtle for most people who are dealing with the day-to-day in healthcare, but I'm so delighted that you did. And I don't get a chance to talk about John Nash very often, but you're picking up on that uh, from the early pages of the book, uh, I think is an important theme because I am optimistic about our overall direction and our potential, but I have to say one of the reasons I'm optimistic is because I see how bad things really are. And uh, I think my feet are on the ground. I'm not just being an idealist uh, and seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. So let's take a minute and just recap for listeners the John Nash angle, which I do think is very relevant. Everyone remembers the movie A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe and Jennifer Connelly, and that was really about the love story between Nash and his wife. Nash famously had that schizophrenic break and then came back from that and won the Nobel Prize. What I bring up in the book is what he won the Nobel Prize for, which is describing equilibrium states and how they break down. Uh, What Nash wrote is that you get these equilibrium states when you have multiple parties that don't have binding agreements among them and they get frozen into some situation and no one can change what they're doing because you need everyone else to change as well. And we have that in healthcare where we've got payers and we have PBMs and we've got employers and we've got patients and hospitals and doctors And even when people are trying to do the right thing, move healthcare toward 
giving better care for people more efficiently, it's really hard to do because you can get one group of people to change, but they can't really change things because no one else will change. So people with good intentions in healthcare have had their hearts broken all the time in the decades that I've been working in this business. But I think that we're at that point that Nash described where equilibrium states break down. He wrote that equilibrium states break down when the pain of the status quo exceeds the fear of the unknown for multiple parties, not just one, for multiple parties. And I think that's where we are in healthcare, and it's been accentuated by the pandemic. We're at that point where healthcare isn't working for employers, it's not working for government, it's not working for patients, it's not working for hospitals, it's not working for doctors, it's not really working for insurance companies either. And when it's not working for anyone, then real change can happen. And that's what makes me optimistic, that we are going to orient healthcare around the right things meeting the needs of people and doing it in a way that we can afford so it's sustainable. Well, Dr. Lee, that's such a critical piece is that affordability and sustainability. And we're optimistic that that industry transformation is in fact possible. And the, and the crises of the last few years have caused many in healthcare to rethink the nature of their work. We've been forced to confront challenges not only related to COVID-19 and the resulting supply chain disruption, but also, we've been presented by an array of destabilizing trends in other areas, including social unrest, political divisiveness, consumerism, demographic shifts, workforce drainage, and environmental disasters. The short-term challenges are daunting, consuming, and at times overwhelming. But for healthcare organizations to emerge in good shape on the other side of these crises, they must address the broad, long-term issues that redefine the nature of excellence itself. And this will be difficult as trust in the healthcare system is increasingly being eroded by what are systemic errors and inequities. These poor systems of care that have not evolved to a higher level of consumerism and downright terrible business outcomes when it comes to purchaser value and financial transparency. And now that COVID-19 and equity concerns have accelerated the shift of the US healthcare marketplace away from fee-for-service payments, do you see value-based care transformation as the key opportunity for organizations to rectify operational and cultural dysfunction? And how do the imperatives of the new marketplace for high-value care focused on long-term outcomes align with what excellence in healthcare truly means? And how can we create a common understanding and language about new standards for excellence to catalyze adoption at scale? And finally, in essence, can we get past the misunderstanding, the politics and jargon of value-based care to create a universally accepted vision for the future that's centered on trust and a strong culture? Well, you know, Daniel, I am every bit as idealistic as you, and I can tell we share the same values and the same goals, including the pursuit of social justice and including the need to respond to climate change. And on one hand, I think five years ago, I might have thought we're trying to boil the ocean if we try to talk about taking on all of these things at once. But right now, I don't feel that way because I think we're at a moment where real redesign of healthcare is happening because the old design just does not work. Now, I would say as we undertake that redesign, which I hope my book contributes to, it's important to understand there is no single magic bullet 
by just changing the way healthcare is paid for, that is necessary, but not sufficient. There are many other things that have to happen, not a hundred things, not even 10 things, but there are about five things, which I highlight in the book. I was very influenced by my my friend and colleague and co-author, Michael Porter at Harvard Business School. He talks about the value chain of activities. This is something he described, you know, in the 1990s, you know, the key activities that are critical to making an organization capable in executing on its strategy. And a strategy is defined on two basic things, which is clarity on what you're trying to do for whom, you know, who's your customer and what are you trying to do for that customer? And I think that's provide excellent, affordable care to patients. That has to be the strategy in healthcare for any organization. And then the second component of strategy is how are you going to be different? Because if you're doing the same thing as everyone else the same way, then you're just going to end up in a price war and you can't have the margin you need to be able to innovate and and make progress, whether you're for-profit or not-for-profit. So Porter described that to execute on your strategy, you once it's clear in your mind what it is and how you're going to be different, you need to lay out the key activities that have to happen. And then you have to manage the interdependencies among those activities. So what I believe are the key elements of the value chain of what we must do includes payment reform. And the market is changing, but it includes several other activities as well. I emphasize trust in the workforce, trust in patients, a broader, deeper notion of what safety means, a response to consumerism. All of these things are critical activities for leaders to focus on. I think that changes in the payment system can accelerate all of those other key activities, but you can't just change the payment system. You've also got to work on those in those other areas as well. Well, Tom, you and I both would agree that healthcare is certainly changing and heading into this new direction. I mean, there's simply no going back at this point. And patients in the workforce have to be different than they were just a few years ago. And the ways in which people interact with healthcare have fundamentally changed. The units of analysis for episodes of care that matter most are increasingly being defined by what patients are experiencing rather than what generates relative value units for billing purposes. The workings of the healthcare marketplace, however, are lagging behind the evolution of care delivery and the long-term responses to enduring challenges will be essential for healthcare organizations to thrive over time. And in your book, you discuss how in times of turmoil, healthcare organizations need more than a performance culture. They need a learning culture. They need the ability to recognize when there is a problem, come up with ideas of how to change, test the ideas, and, and then institute a new way of doing things. And they need the ability to standardize practices and also need the ability to nurture variation. And hardwiring that mindset begins with leaders and managers reconsidering how they think about what they know and requires frequent collection of and analysis of data and discussing how to proceed in an environment where everyone feels safe 
Tom, can you discuss some of the new organizational structures and new roles that will be needed to accelerate the evolution of healthcare? And how will this new leadership and management paradigm eventually serve to extend high reliability to all aspects of performance? Well, Eric, I think every single thing that you just ticked through is completely true. We've got to do every one of those things and we've got to do them really, really well. Now, I will say that if you listed all those things and you handed that list to anyone working in healthcare and said, this is your job to do all these things, any sane person would have a panic attack because you know they're so big and there's so many things. And I think that that's why I believe that maybe the most important part of what I wrote out is the last five pages of the book. And I have only partially joking told people that just skip to the last five pages if you if you really just need to skim and uh, and you'll take away what I really hope you'll take away, which is a division of responsibilities um, where I lay out for three key groups, you know, the three key groups being, you know, the very senior leadership in the board and then managers and then frontline caregivers. For each of those three groups, I lay out three major focuses for them so that we might, we have a chance of executing on all the things that you were taking through. I'm operating from experience which tells me no one can do everything. But if you give people three things and tell them you got to hit it out of the park on these three things, people will usually deliver. I mean, you know, ne- neurologists and psychiatrists, they say, Three is a very good number. People can remember three things. They can focus on three things. If you start giving them four or five things, they start to feel overwhelmed and, they, and they're skeptical that they can execute on, on any of them and they don't take any of them seriously. So, I mean, if you like, maybe we should tick through those three things for each of those three groups. Would you like to do that? Sure, would love it. Okay, so let's start with the boards, CEOs, and senior executives, you know, the real leaders of the organizations. And they are hugely, hugely important. The three things I put down for them are they've got to articulate the core values and they've got to they've got to really believe it and they've got to be authentic and they've got to communicate what those core values are. And that's number one. By far, you know, as Ralph Waldo Emerson said, every organization is the length and shadow of its leaders, and so they, it, that is very important work that they should they should never take for granted. So, making it very clear that the organization values safety, values excellence, values making the healthcare system work for everybody. That's got to come from the top. It's got to be authentic, and they. They can never stop making it clear and just assume that everyone believes them. The second core function is they've got to develop the strategy. And the third is understand the value chain. Now, here I'm using my Michael Porter collaboration framework. They've got to have great clarity on those two questions that Porter poses. What are you trying to do for whom and how are you going to be different? And then they've got to have clarity on those key activities that are necessary to execute on that strategy. And 
you know, the book offers my straw man for them. Uh, they should be following, how are we doing at building trust in patients? How are we doing in building the trust of our employees? How are we doing in safety? Uh, and how are we doing in consumers and their expectations? And they should be looking at metrics that relate to all those things. But that is more important than for them to be following the real details of the financial situations and the real estate. You know, that, that's, that's for management to manage. The board to do governance really needs to be following the value chain of activities. Okay. All right. So for managers, the three things I listed are their job is to create social capital, to bring high reliability principles to life and then to eliminate waste of all types. Now, going deeper, you know, first on social capital. By social capital, I mean the way people are interacting with each other and their infrastructure that enables the organization to do things it couldn't otherwise do. You know, really good teamwork, for example. You know, really reliable interactions with the electronic medical records where everyone actually knows what's going on treating each other with respect and dignity and inclusion. These are things that make organizations better. These are values that should not just be articulated by the C-suite. Every frontline manager has to see it as part of their job to create social capital. I actually feel like social capital is more important than financial capital in the times in which we live. Because you can go to a bank and get money, you can get bailed out by the government, but no one can give you social capital. Your managers have to do it themselves. Bringing high reliability principles to life. I think we've learned a lot about what high reliability means through safety, but we've got to apply it to all of the performance dimensions that really matter to us, including patient experience. We learn through safety what high reliability is about. You know, we have to always do things which are essential. The Anna Karenina principle, you know, that, that courtesy and respect matters to every single patient. But then we have to hate failure so much. We have to despise failure. So we have to trap it. We have to be honest when it occurs. We have to, you know, document it. We have to do root cause analyses and create systems to prevent failure. We've learned how to do that somewhat in patient safety, but there are other kinds of errors that we now know are important to generating trust for patients and trust among employees. Like whenever we fail to treat people with respect, that's, that's emotional harm. And we have to recognize that is akin to you know, a safety error, like doing wrong site surgery. We have to understand why did we do this? How did this happen? What can we do to keep it from happening again? So organizations that really get this high reliability stuff, they have done better during COVID and the times that we're dealing with. And, and having frontline managers who can know how to extend high reliability beyond safety to the other issues that matter is part of our work. And then finally, uh, eliminating waste. We need managers who just hate waste of any kind. Wasted resources, you know, we got to make healthcare affordable, but, you know, wasted time doing stuff which 
makes patients wait, their families wait, makes our own employees waste their time. That's not respectful. We can't afford anyway. So that uh, that culture of no waste, you know, there are organizations that are that are taking that on now. And I have to say the younger generation, they that they're very, very concerned about climate change and sustainability. They frankly can lead this work maybe better than people in their 50s and 60s can. But I think managers should be focusing on all three of those things. I think that they will feel better about their jobs as they do. Well, the frontline caregivers, you know, for the and I am a frontline caregiver, you know, in part time. And my, my part time role is a primary care doc and cardiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Fridays is my patient care day, but basically every day I'm taking care of patients online. The three things I I, I said for them are. First, they have to create a culture of respect. They need to be full participants on great teams, and they have to look at their job as shaping the memory of patients and their families. These are not abstract things. They're not rhetoric. These are real. Creating a culture of respect, you know, we need to be working in a healthcare system that treats every patient and every employee with respect. Now, what does that mean? It really means very tangible things. Like I can tell you that there are a lot of employees in every healthcare organization who will tell you that they don't feel respected, they don't feel included. They come to work and no one addresses them by their name. No one talks to them except to yell at them when they feel like something has gone wrong. That's not only not nice, it is a workforce retention issue. It's a teamwork issue. People who are treated without respect, you will not be shocked to find, are much, much, much more likely to leave the organization than people who do feel like they're respected. So respect should be like something like hand hygiene. We're actually pretty good with hand hygiene today, but if you go back 10 or 20 years, hand hygiene was, was like optional. And it happened when someone was watching, maybe. But today, I think hand hygiene is something that people are doing all the time, and they're doing in front of uh, patients and others so that everyone knows that you're doing it. Treating people with respect should be on that same track. Like it should be something that is in the water, something that if you don't do, you get ostracized by your colleagues. You know, great teams, everyone knows today that individual doctors are not really the story for, for individual patients. It's a team sport and not just clinicians, but the other, the, all the other personnel have to be working together. Everyone wants to be on a great team. You know, frankly, being on a great team is what makes people want to stay in an organization, that sense of belonging on a great team. But when I say there's a norm that needs to develop on frontline caregivers, you can't be on a great team if you're not going to be a great team member. To be a great team member, you've got to be aware of everyone else that you're working with. You've got to like take the time to make things better for them and enter the information that they need in ways that they can use it into electronic medical record, for example. And the final one about shaping memories of patients and their families, 
you know, I I'm I was greatly influenced by this fantastic TED talk by Daniel Kahneman, uh, the Israeli psychologist who helped create behavioral economics. The, the TED talk is on memory versus experience, and and basically Kahneman he he doesn't talk about healthcare, uh, not directly anyway in that TED talk. But what anyone in healthcare will take away from that is our job is not just to be wonderful at whatever our job description is. Our job is to shape the memory and experience of the people that we're taking care of. That includes the families. But it's not just checking off the box on every single thing I'm supposed to do. You know, if either of you were to send a friend or family member to me, I would be thinking, I want them to tell Eric and Daniel how wonderful it was that I took I took care of them. I'll be thinking about what's the memory and the story they're going to tell you. That we all know how to do that. We have to do that on a high reliability basis. You know, not just for the people we like or know or are connected to in some way, but for every single patient, we have to look at ourselves as you know, the Steven Spielberg for we're the producer directors for whatever their memory of what's happening is gonna be. And when we do that, it's not only excellent for our patients, we feel better too. I, do th- I don't think that any of those three things is out of our reach. It's, it's all very possible. It's just people being at their best reliably, not just sporadically. Well, Tom, I, I really appreciate that depth into what leadership and healthcare looks like and what managers and frontline staff need to be doing. And, and as I think about some of the things you said, I want to dive deeper into the patient piece. And as we develop the new path forward for healthcare, we, we really have to start with that empathy for patients, for their fears, their needs, and their values and their concerns before we redesign care delivery. And we saw that COVID-19 was really a testing ground for industry and patient-centered care redesign as providers spent extraordinary amounts of thought and attention to building trust among their patients. But we can't stop there. We need to continue to broaden our understanding to the entire set of interactions that matter to patients, including going beyond the one-to-one clinician-patient relationship. As you mentioned, it's a team effort and building trust with the patient's families as well and with their community. And, And deepening means going far beyond the topics captured in standard measures to get at the more subtle issues that inspire their confidence or their or help them to divulge their concerns. And we must also listen to people about what matters to them and gather the information at friction points over a broader period of time. And in your book, you, you posit that patients trust their caregivers when they adhere to those high reliability principles that you've referenced earlier. You refer to the Anna Karenina principle that was adapted from the first line of Tolstoy's novel, Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in their own way. Can you discuss the importance of high reliability and earning trust with patients? And and how can we extend this Anna Karenina principle to healthcare as a means to always do the small things that are essential for building trust and constantly working to prevent the many, many things that might erode trust? You know, Daniel, I'm so glad that you focused on that issue and that you you clearly get the many nuances of it. And I, I think that it's such an interesting time that we're living in. And I'll say at the outset that uh, not so long ago, 
people in medicine just felt like people should trust us. We're good people. We're working hard. Of course, they should trust us. We deserve trust. But we are living in a time where trust is under attack throughout society. And it's not just politicians that are driving it. There are a variety of other dynamics at work, social media, and, and so on. But the reality is, is we can't take trust for granted. We have to we have to think about it. We have to understand what drives trust, and we have to try to work to build it. And at least I believe that the organizations and the leaders who can think clearly about trust, I think they're going to do better than, than the ones who are just taking it for granted. That's not a very bold prediction on my part, but it's a warning to those who might not get take it seriously. Now, there are many very interesting dimensions uh, to it, and you alluded to several of them. You know, one is that it's not just what happens when patients are sitting across from their doctor. It's the whole episode of care that that begins when they go to the internet and they and they start their Google searches for whatever is making them nervous and who might be able to help them with that. I think that we all know this stuff instinctively about how consumers behave, but now we're beginning to really take it seriously in healthcare. So for example, if, if you Google the name of a doctor to try and decide, you know, might this person be good for me? If you see very little information about them, like no comments, um, no star ratings, that's not actually a good thing. You know, when you go to Amazon for a book and there are only two comments, then you're probably not real certain that this is a book that you want to read. If there are 50 comments, even if they're mixed comments, you know, but people are paying attention to this book, you know, you're you're more ready to think about buying it. Now, what you you want to go to the web and Google Thomas H. Lee and or or whoever whatever the doctor is that you're thinking about. And what you want to find are data. You want to find a picture. You want to find star ratings. You want to find a lot of comments. And you want to find consistency. The same. You want to find the same thing when you're looking at the Brigham and Women's website is when you're looking at health grades and vitals and Yelp. Uh, this is why organizations are starting to do things like export their data to third-party sites and to payer sites so that patients can see a consistent picture. That helps them build trust. Patients do not feel great about going to anyone who is three stars or two stars. They want four or five stars, and they want consistent four or five stars. They don't, and if there's sites with two stars because they've got three data points, you know, one of which is from an angry neighbor, they're going to be less than fully trusting. You know, there is, frankly, data showing that if patients are expecting Thomas Lee to be a five-star doctor, they are more likely to be confident in what I tell them. And they're more likely to actually leave feeling like they had a, a five-star experience. And, you know, just the way like when I go to a restaurant and someone orders an expensive wine, I suddenly find myself thinking, this is so good. I'm not trying to trick people in thinking that I'm a five-star doctor, but I want to build their trust. Trust ultimately is a part of the 
part of the product of what we're trying to produce in healthcare. But so the thinking about the web experience, that is not just a way of capturing business, it's a way of building trust. Then the things I would emphasize that are relatively new insights that come from the pandemic are that patients are unnerved by chaos and friction, and they're unnerved by any sense that they might not be safe. People are afraid out there now. I think they were afraid before, but the pandemic in the last few years has, has really heightened their fears that they they might not be able to trust the care system. You know, trust is confidence you're going to be well taken care of in circumstances you haven't even thought of yet. And if if the system isn't working, they can't reach the practice, they can't get an appointment, they can't get accurate information. Uh, all of these things which don't directly relate to how Dr. Tom Lee is when he's face-to-face -face with the patient, all of these things undermine patients' trust that they're getting good care. The other day, I, I referred a patient for a, a kidney renal consult, and the patient emailed me back saying the first appointment he could get was January 4th, 2024. And, you know, on one hand, you know, part of me thought, well, this isn't my fault, but you know, the very next thought I had is this patient can't possibly be trusting that we are are taking good, good care of, of, of him. And I got on email and arranged for the patient to be seen much, much, much sooner. So that kind of friction matters. You know, sense of safety, like safety wasn't even measured in ambulatory patient experience surveys. It's not part of the government-sponsored CAP survey for outpatient visits at all, but safety matters to people everywhere. You know, we we at my company, Prescani, we added some questions about, you know, whether patients had any kind of concerns about safety during their ambulatory visits. And in the 16.7% who said they did, they were in the one percentile in term at the very, very bottom in terms of their likelihood of recommending. The, the, the practice, even if the doctors were perfect in every single thing, according to the patient, if they saw anything that made them feel less than safe, they, they, they ranked the practice in the second percentile at the very, very bottom. You know, th their concerns were things like, you know, it, it didn't seem like the room had been cleaned since the prior patient. There was a Band-Aid with a spot of blood on it sitting on the counter. The doctor had some, some kind of fluid stain on his or her scrubs. The patients weren't going to be harmed by these things, but they have to be wondering if they can't get these things right, what else might they not be getting right? So all of these things contribute to that summary statement about the Anna Karenina principle. And yes, the first line is from Tolstoy is that happy families are all like and every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Uh, we have clear data showing that when patients and employees are happy, there are certain themes that are always there. 
There are the nice things are treated with courtesy and respect. There's a commitment to safety and quality, and there's pride in that. They're always there. But there are a million ways in which we can lose the trust of patients and the trust of employees. And we have to hate every one of them so much that we're going to be honest and capture them and respond to them. That's where the Anna Karenina principle is relevant to healthcare. We've got to always do the things we should always do. And we have to hate errors so much that we pounce on every everything that erodes trust in patients whenever they occur. Well, Tom, let's also talk about the employees and in this new path forward for healthcare, we have to earn the trust of the workforce and workforce well-being is at a crisis at this moment. It looks like this moment is going to last a really long time, well beyond the end of the pandemic. I mean, every healthcare organization right now is having difficulty hiring and retaining employees of all types, clinical and non-clinical, and every organization has increased its compensation spending and also discovered that money is only part of the answer to their human resource challenges. Trust is so important because these healthcare organizations need their employees to have multiple forms of resilience when crises arise. And data collected from healthcare employees show that burnout has been building as a problem for decades. In the last few years have been especially crushing, especially for women and minorities. Uh, Press Ganey's employee engagement indicator rolls up data from a wide range of metrics used in surveys of employees in healthcare organizations. And in 2021, this indicator declined in every single job category. The data also reflected the positive motivations for most of the people working in healthcare, and they suggest a viable path forward that should help in building trust. Tom, can you discuss the challenges that are currently posed by healthcare organizations due to workforce burnout and moral injury and how this is connected to this erosion of trust and what can leaders do to improve listening and understanding and what tools can they use to gather insights on their employees? And most importantly, how can they respond with authenticity and logic to improve workforce wellness, restore trust and truly create an environment that values diversity? Well, you know, Eric, again, I got to say, I'm impressed at how thoroughly you've thought through these issues and also gone through what I put in the book. I think you've got your finger on a lot of the key themes. I actually have some very recent data that's not included in the book because it is, you know, just in the last few weeks that, you know, I can share with you, which, which is that, you know, we may be seeing the light at the end of the tunnel uh, in that there is like an upward ticking in some key areas, which I'll get to in a second. First, let me say all of the difficult things that you talk about are true. And it would be very reasonable uh, for people who are worrying about staffing their floors and their clinics to be having panic attacks right now because of all the dynamics that you talk about. We have financial crises and it's really hard to find the, the money it takes to you know, staff floors these days. And I'm not going to say there's um, uh, an easy way out on that issue. But as you indicate, money is not the answer. You need to pay people competitively to get them in the door, but then you need to keep them. You need to keep them from leaving. And what 
our data clearly show is that once you have them, then it's not money that is a major factor in determining whether they stay or not. What makes them stay are things that are very, very consistent with building trust in patients, fortunately. The key things I would emphasize are, first, pride really matters. And I would encourage you and your listeners to think about pride in three different flavors. There's pride in the organization, there's pride in what you do in the organization, and there's pride in what your team does. These are three different things, and you need to be working on all three types all the time for people. You want people to feel happy when a neighbor says, so where do you work? You want them to you know, if they say I'm working at this place, they want them to be, they want to be dying for that question to get asked because they're, they're proud of where they work. And then when they describe what they do, you want them to be proud of that. And then if they feel like they're on a team doing great stuff and they belong on that team and people like them, and that, then they're never going to leave. So pride is number one. Then I would say that the next major issue is alignment personally. There's how they feel about the organization and the work, but then it's how they feel about how that, the, the relationship with their own personal situation. Like, are my interests aligned with the organization? And is it a place where they can develop, where they have a future that, you know, do they feel included in discussions? Like what they have to say really matters. You know, this alignment issue is very closely intertwined with DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which we have found is a fourfold risk factor for losing people. And people don't feel like it's an inclusive environment. And then there is resilience. This is the third and the last of the major categories, with the major categories being pride, then alignment, and then personal resilience. Like, can you bounce back and come in the next day and deliver? And our psychologists, they break resilience down to two factors. One is activation. Like, how into it are you? How turned on by what you're doing are you? How motivated are you? That's one major component of resilience. And then the other is decompression your ability to forget about work, to go home and recover and so that you can get up the next day and, and come back in. And among the encouraging data, first, I would say that our data are encouraging and that they're showing that these things are much more important than, than pay in terms of getting people to stay, all, all three of these major categories. But a second major encouraging thing is that activation how into it people feel, not just doctors, not just nurses, but everybody in healthcare. Activation has not gone down one bit through the last three very, very difficult years. If anything, activation is slightly greater. People are proud of what we're doing in healthcare. Now, it's decompression that has taken a beating and is taking a beating more for younger people than for older people, the ability to recover as we capture in our data. 
And that has gone down quite a bit in the first few years. It may be flattening out now and starting to improve. But overall, I think that activation is intact. And that reflects on the quality of the people that are drawn to healthcare. And it's one of the reasons I like to work in healthcare. People are proud of the work they're doing. So I gave you a whole bunch of major themes that come out of data that we're looking at. I just want to emphasize this isn't wishful thinking uh, or a rhetorical speech I'm giving you. All of these points I'm making are deeply supported by data. Well, Tom, I want to dive into another topic that you mentioned earlier and that Eric referenced as one of the main takeaways from your book. And we've talked a lot about COVID-19 as this inflection point for creating new standards of excellence. And so in the patient safety and healthcare quality movement, there's also another inflection point. The two landmark reports from the Institute of Medicine to Eras Human and Crossing the Quality Chasm. And they expose the U.S. healthcare system as being far from ideal in terms of safety and quality. And the two reports forced healthcare leaders to no longer take safety for granted. And likewise, for safety, the pandemic has had a similar impact. It was like an unsettling audit that unmasked weaknesses and with long-term implications. So in this new post-pandemic era, should we be thinking differently about safety? Should organizations be evolving from preventing physical harm into developing a culture obsessed with high reliability on multiple forms of excellence? I'd love to hear more of your perspective on how we go broader and deeper when it comes to patient safety. Well, you know, Daniel, we are living in such an interesting time. And I think that we are getting better and wiser in understanding the nature of injury to patients and suffering to patients. And so now I think the pandemic has taught us, the pandemic as well as the social unrest that's, a, that's followed the murder of George Floyd and other tragedies, we have a deeper understanding of the ways in which people are suffering. And, and when they're suffering because of things that we, we could stop we, or things we could not do, or, or if we could prevent suffering, then it's harm if we have the ability to stop it. So there's emotional harm. You know, I don't think that in the early days of the safety movement, we were very, very focused on physical harm and physical harm still goes on and, and it's still important. But now we understand that there's emotional harm where people, when people don't feel safe, that in fact is harm. When people are harmed financially, they can't afford other things because of what's happened to them in, in the, with their health care, that's harm as well. So with that broader understanding of the ways in which people are suffering out there, we're recognizing that we've got the ability to do something about that. And if we're not doing it, that's unconscionable. So let me give you an example of how subtle this, this stuff is. You know, I, and I learned this from one of the quality leaders in the national health system in the United Kingdom, a woman named Susan Coe. She was describing for me how in one group of hospitals, the nurses had always hated the disinfectant that was being used because it just smelled so much like a disinfectant. And they kept asking to switch to something that was less pungent. And, and, it, and so eventually, in part because the United Kingdom is having a nursing crisis like everywhere else, 
the manager switched to a disinfectant that had virtually no odor and that was equally safe, but it cost slightly more. And after that happened, patient experience ratings went downhill and complaints about the cleanliness went up. And what was happening was that patients didn't feel safe when they were not aware of the disinfectant being used. Suddenly, if there was a dust ball under the bed, it seemed like something threatening to them when they didn't feel the disinfectant. So this is, I, I can give you other examples that are analogous to this, but the understanding that we not only have to keep people safe, we have to make sure they feel safe. That is a nuance that frankly, we hadn't thought of before. We kind of knew it, but now the data are very explicit. So the same thing is true for other kinds of injury, including when people don't feel respected. They're all basically like safety events. In fact, we are considering them safety events. And many institutions are doing huddles every day to capture them and try to figure out how to stop them. Yeah, I do think it's the right attitude. Well, Tom, you mentioned earlier the murder of George Floyd. And I think that has prompted us as a country to examine the nature and impact of inequality throughout our society. And you referenced this uh, in your book a few times. And this process is underway in healthcare, but this cultural zeitgeist has elevated our consciousness when it comes to equity. And there's definitely a lot of work to be done. You know, it's now universally understood by healthcare organizations now that they need to make equity prioritization an essential part of excellence going forward. You know, just like how we discussed in the last question about how we needed to think differently about safety, we also need to think differently about equity. And you have a chapter in your book about diversity, equity, and inclusion as a form of social capital, similar to financial capital. Social capital enables organizations to do things that they otherwise could not do. And you make a compelling case for how poor DEI will likely doom organizations to poor performance. Can you provide our listeners with some of the insights that you discuss in your book regarding DEI and how should we be thinking differently about diversity, equity, and inclusion? And how does an organization get started on the work of pursuing zero inequity? Well, you know, Eric, you know, this really is an example of a topic that makes me feel optimistic about the future because we have come a long way in the last three years. I can tell you that probably most organizations before the murder of George Floyd did not get the difference between diversity and equity and inclusion. And and there were a great many very good leaders who thought if they were being colorblind, that they were doing their job in creating you know, an equitable and inclusive environment. And I think that virtually everyone who has been participating in discussions on, this, on these topics at all is in a very different place now. You know, we understand that treating people the same is not the same as, as 
as meeting everyone's needs and doing what it takes to, to help them to the same extent. And inclusion, you know, making people feel like they belong and that they're respected and their voice is heard, that this is an essential part of healthcare for patients and an essential part of having a workforce that, that, that's going to do a good job together. I really do believe that we're in a different place now. There are major leaders in healthcare who are now saying zero inequity should be our goal, just the way zero harm is our safety goal. Now, organizations are looking at their data and they're finding we have intolerable things going on, even when we believe we have the best of intentions. I can tell you safety net hospitals and everywhere else, they are finding that even with very idealistic people, there's good data showing that Black women are having more pain and getting less analgesia as they go through labor and delivery than non-Black women. You know, their pain is just not taken as seriously. This is at places where people pride themselves on being progressive. If you don't look at the data, you don't know. Now, one of the reasons I feel so optimistic when I look at our, our recent data is that these issues are hugely important on employee retention. And it's not just for nurses and doctors, it's like security guards and clerks and maintenance people. The biggest risk factors for them leaving an organization is if they don't feel that the organization is treating people like people and giving patient-centered care. When I first saw that data, I thought, this is kind of weird. And one of my colleagues who had been a chief operating officer said, you know, Tom, you don't get it. Like when patients don't feel they've been treated respectfully, they don't yell at the doctor, that people like me, but they take it out on everyone else. But when people feel like they've been treated with respect, and that they've been treated with empathy and taken very seriously. They are so grateful. They are thanking everybody. They're thanking the front desk clerk. They're smiling and thanking the security guards, and the maintenance people on the way out. And that is what makes the clerks and the maintenance workers and the security guards want to stay at the institution where they are, as opposed to taking a job at Amazon or an ice cream parlor. So I do think that these DEI themes, we have a deeper understanding of them now. They're, they're really treating everyone respect with respect. They're, they're making everyone feel included in decision-making and discussions. They're knowing that their voice is heard. And then there's, they're create, it's about creating a sense of belonging for employees. All of these things are steps down a very good road that are taking us to a better place than we were before the tragic murder of George Floyd. Tom, thank you for those insights. Um, I think it's really meaningful. We've heard a lot of great information and, and knowledge and wisdom from you. And as we wrap up our conversation today, I'd like to get your parting thoughts on the new skills that are needed for the era that's ahead of us. When you think about thriving in the future, 
healthcare organizations must pursue goals that might have been taken for granted or considered to be narrower in scope in the past. But everything we've talked about for the last hour, building trust, embracing consumerism, building a high reliability culture, being responsive to the marketplace imperatives of high value care, and developing an inclusive culture that values equity. All of these things require new skills that will drive performance excellence. How should leaders and boards be thinking about workforce development to create these skills within themselves as well as the workers that they lead? And can you provide a few closing comments on the importance of skill development and workforce training? And what role do you see higher education playing here to support healthcare organizations in the development of these enhanced competencies? Well, you know, the first thing I would say is working in healthcare is great. And I think that we should never lose sight of that. And, and, and leaders should recognize it and keep articulating that. Whenever I hear people say healthcare stinks and I would never go into it again, at first, I don't believe them. Uh, and I feel like they haven't looked at other things seriously. And I think maybe they don't belong in healthcare. But I actually start the book with you know my little list, my, my David Letterman influence top 10 list of the things I love about healthcare. And, and I emphasize at the end of that preface that uh, the more things change, the more things, certain things should stay the same. And those top 10 things, we should never lose, lose track of them and make sure we preserve them as we redesign the system. Now, that said, care does need to be redesigned so that we can meet the needs of the modern patient slash consumer so that we can deliver high value care that's affordable. All the values that, uh, you know, you two have articulated, you know, through your questions and statements, we're going to have to do redesign and we're going to have to build trust as we do it. The skills that I would emphasize are, you know, going from high level to narrow level, I would say you have to understand strategy and you you know the Michael Porter sense of strategy I do think that clarity so you can focus on what really matters and so that you can lead your organization in creating value for patients you have to have a laser like focus you have to understand the value chain I think these Michael Porter things are really really important and being ready to be a full participant in the broader marketplace in, in meeting social society's needs, being ready to plunge into competition as opposed to deflect competition. Those, those are at the very highest level. But then as you get into management and delivery, I think you need those social capital skills, like understanding teamwork and really building teams and really creating the culture of, of that that characterize the great team, psychological safety and and combined with accountability. And you have to like create the social norms that enable you to have great teams because you've got great team members like respect uh, and empathy and of course, you know, safety and, and so on. And then you need to create a growth mindset, you know, the, uh, the Angela Duckworth grit uh, orientation. Now, all of these things seem like a lot, but they're all great. And, and you put them together and, you know, who could ask for a, a better kind of work to do? I would say that, you know, we do have to help the, the generation coming along 
and I would include my my oldest daughter, who is a cardiology trainee, you know, as my case study. The things I would emphasize to her and her colleagues, and I do emphasize to her and her colleagues, are number one, that medicine is great. Number two, you can do great things in this field. You can be creative. You can do redesign. It needs your creativity. Uh, number three, you got to be a great team member with great values in order to do it. And, uh, and number four, let's focus on some subset of patients with a specific problem and you make a difference by making that problem better. I tell every young person, identify the problem that you're trying to solve and then make a difference in it. And you're going to feel better and people will respect you for the work. So I do think that we're in a situation that because as you started at the beginning, Eric, by pointing out the Nash equilibrium is breaking down, uh, this is the best time to be going into healthcare. You know, you can really make a difference in a very, very noble field that's going to make you and your family and your friends proud. Well, Tom, I emphatically agree, and I think you're making a difference as well in the work that you're doing, providing us with the, the inspiration and the guideposts to really blaze a new path forward in healthcare. I, I'm so appreciative of your time and uh, sharing the insights from your new book, Healthcare's Path Forward, How Ongoing Crises and Are Creating New Standards for Excellence. Um, how can our listeners find your book and learn more about your work? Well, it's out there on Amazon, it's on Audible, it's on Kindle, and I'm not trying to push books. Uh, I do think that uh, they can find it there. I hope it's useful. But uh, I will say anyone who wants to make healthcare better, you're a friend of mine. And you can reach out to me. My email is thomas.lee at prescaney.com. I'm always interested in hearing from and trying to help anyone who is trying to make healthcare accessible, excellent, and affordable. Well, Tom, you're a friend of ours as well. And, you know, we're, uh, we share the same passion for uh, creating a better tomorrow. Again, thank you for your time today. I know our listeners are going to enjoy this conversation. And I, I think we're eventually going to get there to the new path forward in healthcare. I'm sure we will. And thank you so much. And I thought that your questions and issues that you framed were great. And I'm so pleased you read the book. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much.